this week's episode of The Underside of Power. I'm Mark. And I'm Sean, and thank you guys for joining us this week yet again. And just to catch everybody up on where we last left off on our last episode, uh, we were reviewing the Alberta 2019 general election with a postmortem that nobody asked for or wanted, really. And since then, uh, the premier designate, Jason Kenney, has walked back his threats of turning off the oil taps to BC. He has canceled um, the the Alberta Super Lab project here at the University of Alberta. Um, And he has also voiced support with going along with the uh, Fed's delayed pipeline plan. Um, So I just really hope that everybody's getting what they want because it appears that he's doing a really bang up job of keeping track of and, and holding to each and every one of his promises so far. Yeah, I guess so, eh? But as politics typically goes, um, unfortunately, we haven't had a chance to see what's going to happen in the ledge yet because they have not yet sat. Um, But, you know, I think a lot of the things that he promised will in some way or another uh, come through. Um, But like any any campaign, a lot of it is just uh, uh, bravado or point scoring as we typically see. So I also saw an interesting headline the other day. What was it? Him talking about... He actually prefers the federal carbon tax to the provincial one. So now that the election's really? over, he's not just talking about fighting two in a row, but uh, I guess he's going to hang his hat on repealing the provincial and just embrace the federal. So, yeah, you're starting starting to see a little bit less strategic maneuvering as soon as the election's over, as always happens. I guess I guess it's just, you know, you, you th- there's something to be said about getting comfortable, but to be comfortable before even moving into your office kind of thing. Anyways, well, they're already in, right? They're done. I like get, they, yeah. I suppose they know so. no more points have to be scored at least for the next four years, really. The next yeah, three that's and true. A half. And with the cultural memory being as short as it is, yep. they probably don't need to wrap up the rhetoric in for another three years at least. Yep. But you know, we shouldn't be too surprised to see the watering down of some of these policy ideas. Yeah. And uh, as usual, I'm not. It's just like Trudeau and uh, proportional representation, right? Yeah. You say something popular enough, you so, don't have to actually do it. So I think we came around this table today to talk about um, something that probably is going uh, a campaign promise that's probably going to be held to by Jason Kenney's United Conservatives in the legislature, and that is um, austerity and tax cuts. Right. So I think um, what a good way to approach this today would be kind of going over what what is austerity in a general way and then also what has it been in Alberta for the last few decades and what it will now, I guess, continue to be under the UCP. Um, because if there's one thing that defines our economy, uh, especially the government management of it, it would be austerity. Mm. Those low tax, low spending, you know, belt tightening kind of measures. Right. Um, and so when we're talking about austerity how how do we define that you know it's kind of a tricky thing because it's very conceptual um but i always think of austerity in relation to uh, ronald reagan and margaret thatcher Mm -hmm. you had kind of them in the 80s beginning the push towards neoliberal free trade that we see today Mm -hmm. so the general idea is that well because trade and private industry is what makes a country's gdp grow um, we want to keep tax revenue and uh, tax and spending of government revenues as low as possible, allow the free market to work wherever it possibly can, um, and just encourage trade and investment with low tax rates. It's a pretty simple, straightforward idea where you're going to get more investment, uh, uh, greenfield investment in a country or a state, province, where the 
company has to pay less taxes. So this is the general idea around like tariff reduction and then around corporate tax reduction that we saw come out in the 80s. Right. And, and usually when we're talking about austerity, that's usually referring to the dialing back of spending, um, sort of like this reserved conservative view, but really only of the government in this context. And when we talk about because you sort of raise the specter of um, of like Reagan economic policy policy, which is characterized, as you said, by low tax rates, which comes around to voodoo economics or what's probably more commonly known as trickle down economics. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of this idea that if we can just relieve as much government oversight and influence as possible that your economy is just going to boom, take off. Everyone's going to have lots of jobs. They're going to make more money. The corporations are going to make more money. They're the job creators after all. Mm -hmm. So as much as you can put into their coffers, the better, essentially. And we yeah. could argue that that had been sort of the preeminent economic and governance policy of the province of Alberta for, you know, since like 1992 to to current day essentially Definitely. yeah yeah and i think a lot of that comes with trickle down uh kind of low taxes increasing growth uh kind of two of the main thrusts of that would be that it creates so much prosperity in terms of gdp growth that mm -hmm. you can buy most things privately yourself and so everyone's going to prosper and those and then the second thrust of it is those public services that you do need like healthcare mm -hmm. or whatever a lot of times uh uh, uh trickle down advocates will say that even those will do better because if you have a lower tax rate on the corporation, it will make so much more money that even with that lower tax rate, you'll still get a larger um, total revenue. Because um, you've lowered the tax rate by a few percentage points, but they make up for that in the growth that they get out of that lower investment. Um, so those two things, first of all, oh, you have enough private money anyway, and second of all, um, you may very well increase revenues by lowering taxes, um, are the kind of the two thrusts, I would say, of the idea of austerity. And the second one is, is known as the Laffer curve, uh, is usually employed in that. So um, it's worth looking up just to see kind of how they, how they justify those ideas. Sure. Um, it's very halcyonic. It's very um, utopian kind of thing. And frankly, it doesn't work a lot of the time. But we're going to get into these practical examples today with Alberta, I think. Well, and it essentially works none of the time. Just to, to take a, an external example for, for a moment. So, of course, under Donald Trump, the Republicans passed the single largest corporate tax cut in, I think, in American history, if I recall. It was like the boldest one. And what happened almost immediately, like you had GM lay off how many thousands of people, you saw massive uh, share buyback by the large companies, such as, you know, um, Amazon is an example of this. Uh, there was a number of others that did huge buybacks. While they still have people who in some states uh, in America make as little as 750 an hour. I think I think that's kind of like the bottom of the of the line there. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting is that um, what what's kind of ignored is that there are other ways to incentivize increasing your workers' wages and investment into a company. And in fact, in most jurisdictions, those are actually you, you can't those are tax exempt expenditures. When you spend money on personnel, when you spend money on investing into equipment, generally you can write those off. Mm -hmm. And so actually lowering overall tax rates only encourages sort of this hoarding and collection of profit at the top level. It's a way to pretend that you're going to help the whole economy while 
Um, well, yeah, it's snake oil. Well, of course. But you can <laughs> still, this is the, the trick they play, is they can still pretend like it's actually going to work. Because in some situations with some companies, at some times, it mm-hmm. might result in that. But the fact right. is that it can also result in the opposite. Right. Um, and I think with Reagan, what we saw is the, the not only the lower tax rates domestically, but the lower lowering of uh, tariffs mm-hmm. and the creation of free trade. And, and regulations as well. And that's going to cause a lot of outsourcing, right? Sure. So the idea is now we have no tariff barriers. There's no trade barriers anymore. Well, how are we going to keep investment in our country to prevent outsourcing? Well, governments like Kenny's um, now in Alberta or, or like any austerity government will say, well, we have to lower our taxes, keep it competitive because there's no longer anything preventing international cross-provincial um, uh, trade in any way. So. Right. And so just to bounce off that sort of like neoliberal slash economic libertarian angle, um, I just want to refer to a document written by the beloved Fraser Institute, which if people don't know who that is or, or who, the, who what that organization is, essentially, um, if you've heard of Veritas, if you've heard of the Heritage Foundation in the States, for instance, the Fraser Institute is basically the Canadian version in that it's a sort of economic libertarian think tank and their single issue is taxes, 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 taxes. Uh, We need to lower taxes. We need to get rid of these taxes that they they have. Here is your tax-free day, which is like a calculation based on which province you live in at what point in the year that the money you make goes straight into your account, which is like it's asinine. It's oversimplified. It doesn't take into account, you know, like I said, those tax, those taxable exemptions that you can apply for and of which there's numerous ones. Um, But this is the kind of organization that we're talking about. And every single time there's a conversation about taxes or royalty policy or anything of this nature um, or public spending, they always have a report that weirdly, for some reason, always agrees with that we need to lower taxes and, and this will improve our economic standing. Right. And I think the Fraser Report is a really good place to start because we're dealing with a very big conceptual issue here regarding, I mean, the big beef here that's being discussed is whether it's worth the reduction in investment um, attractiveness to have government revenue. Mm -hmm. That's the question here. So I do want to read. Like social Democrat type people would say it's worth getting that revenue. Mm -hmm. But these kind of ideas, these austerity measures, um, this right wing economics plan tends to say that, well, if we have very little revenue to virtually no usable revenue, it's okay as long as we have private uh, increased investment. So the Fraser Institute takes that that view, and I think they do a pretty good job of exemplifying what we mean by so that. So I, I do want to read some excerpts, and just for our audience, I know tax theory and policy is super exciting, and it, it just keeps us up at night. It's really high-octane stuff, right? Um, That's what I was trying to like give an overview, kind of break it down. And so um, we'll try and get through this as quickly as possible to get to the more interesting like social policy stuff. Um, But just really briefly, so from the report entitled The End of the Alberta Tax Advantage from the Fraser Institute, which was written in response to the the changes to the Alberta taxation system in 2015 by the New Democratic Party, um, which were mild. Let's just get that out of the way. Very, very mild common sense adjustments to the taxation schema. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just going to read some excerpts. So they say here, we find that whereas in each of these areas, Alberta until quite recently enjoyed a substantial advantage over all Canadian provinces and most U.S. energy states, that advantage has been substantially undermined or completely erased for one of for two of the three pillars. Specific findings include 
before the tax policy changes, Alberta had the lowest corporate tax rate in Canada. Alberta's advantage in this area is gone. Alberta's new provincial corporate tax rate is higher than British Columbia's and Ontario's and is almost identical to those in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Quebec. Alberta can now be considered middle of the pack within Canada on corporate taxes. That's being written in response to a from a 10% to a 2% increase. Right, exactly. Just bear this in is, mind. This is going from 10 to 12%. Just bear in mind. Yeah. 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 So, uh, this and is I think it should also be mentioned that we did have a corporate tax rate of 15% in the past. Yeah, we did. Under progressive conservative yeah. government. As, as, as so late not on, really splitting the difference. As, as late on in 2001, we had a corporate tax rate of 13.5%. So right now, our tax rate is lower than when Klein was in the peak of his office. Right. So bearing that in mind. Um, in two, 2014, Alberta had the lowest top combined federal, provincial, slash state tax rate out of 60 Canadian provinces and American states. And I just want to pause here and say the cross comparison with Canada and the United States is really irritating. And I think it kind of shows where the Fraser, Fraser Institute is coming from. They want a Republican style Wild West system in Canada where everything is under private control and there's very little actual um, public spending or institutional power. So just mm -hmm. bearing that in mind for the moment. Um, after the tax policy changes, Alberta's top personal income tax rate is now the 46th lowest. That means Canada's top rate is now the highest in the highest third of North American jurisdictions. Bear in mind, North American jurisdictions, comparing it to the United States, which is notorious for their adherence to trickle-down economics, massive corporate tax cuts, massive corporate welfare. Mm -hmm. Right, so bearing that in Scraping mind, Scraping so by with little, very little government revenue to yep. the point where they can't even fund. At least they claim not to be able to fund a public health care system. Well, they just like, put it into the military, right? Right. Um, but we have to keep in mind just how low their revenue really is. So we can essentially completely ignore that part. Um, and then it says here that Alberta retains one pillar of its tax advantage in the Canadian context, as it alone among the provinces does not have a provincial sales tax. Relative to American energy jurisdictions, again, why? Why compare it to the United States? It's clear that their society doesn't function very well as a general rule for most people, right? Like, you know, like 50% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. The median income is around $30,000, right? Like tens of thousands of people die every year from lack of basic health care. They have an incredibly high infant mortality rate. Why is the Fraser Institute putting the Americans up on some kind of pedestal? Mm-hmm doesn't make any sense. Well, it's because they do good business, don't you know? Yeah, so back to what I was saying. <laughs> Relative to American energy jur jurisdictions, however, Alberta does not necessarily enjoy a sales tax advantage as there are several states with neither a federal nor state-level sales tax. Right. So just bear in mind where the Fraser Institute is coming from. They're just anti-taxes and that's it. That's mm -hmm. the only string to their bow. And they're comparing us to like Texas and, yeah. and deep red states that have very, very little taxes. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and then um, I took another excerpt here that says, historically, the province's tax advantage consisted of three primary pillars, which was a single-rate personal income tax rate of 10%, the country's lowest corporate income tax rate of also 10%, and the absence of a provincial sales tax. So that's all they're on about. And the whole point of this report, and um, we'll post a link to it in, in the description, the whole point to this report is basically to say, and they and they go on and they describe like Alberta had the highest level levels of growth uh, of um, of employment growth uh, in uh, in Canada, that we had the highest GDP per uh, per capita ratio, kind of thing. All all this stuff, the hi uh, one of the highest real GDP per worker on the North American continent in 2014. 
notably, though, the states above uh, or the yeah, the American states, which are the only units above us in this graph, are Wyoming, North Dakota and Alaska, which are notorious for their low populations and oil wealth. Mm-hmm. Right. Just like Alberta. <laughs> yeah. Just like Alberta. Right. So. I'm assuming we would skew really high in the per capita measure because we have so few people. Yeah, as well. we have like what four million people or something, yeah. like just over. And so the thing is, is that the thing is, is that they're trying to claim that the low tax rate that we had during those years was somehow responsible for our economic boom. Right, and also uh, kind of uh, coordinated with that claim is that a 2% increase in corporate tax and mm-hmm. a new income tax five-tier system would threaten that advantage. Yeah, exactly. Right? So what's the argument being made here? Essentially that the advantage we had in lower taxes is worth the lower revenues that we were we were sacrificing mm-hmm. because of the GDP increase that you know makes everyone's lives better. This is this is the fundamental premise. Even though we didn't even really manage to capture that increase in GDP per capita because the personal income tax and the corporate tax rates were so low at 10%. Right. But this is the trade-off they're saying, right? Is that, oh, that revenue doesn't matter as much as this growth. And I think underlying this is a libertarian ideology that the businesses should be allowed to keep what they've gotten because they deserve it. I think that's a lot of where they're coming from. But the way they have to frame this in the larger public view, (laughs) the way they have to frame it, package it up, is saying, oh, it's going to help everyone because your GDP goes up. But, you know, there really is underlying this. I mean, you can tell by the kind of people in the Fraser Institute. um, Underlying this is a huge idea of autonomy and liberty for these companies to keep their money. Uh, I don't think that if they're fully honest that the main reason they're doing this is to increase And what's interesting, though, is that if this were true, that this lower... Now, I just wanted to point to one thing, that there were specific policies that the PCs did implement, especially early on in the development of the oil sands, for instance, which did lead to pretty amazing growth, which was, for instance, they had a royalty freeze on new oil sands developments until you passed your capital investment, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so until you were actually turning a profit and t- like making money off of it, you didn't pay royalties. And that was huge in the establishment as of that time was an unproven resource, right? Like this is the early 90s kind of thing. Um, but what they didn't mention is that the technology that made that possible was a billion dollars of public investment in public research institutions. Right. Like the university, like the University of Alberta, for instance, was like our faculty of engineering was very influential in that. And it was also there was other institutes, publicly funded institutes across the country as well that contributed to that as well. So they ignore that this resource wasn't even possible to develop until public money was actually able to do the research because it was at that time. Nobody knew how to get bitumen out of the ground. Mm-hmm. It's, it's notoriously difficult to process. Right. Yeah. why it costs so much per barrel in order to make it economically viable. Yeah, and so that's what I'd say, like, as you said, with their potentially beneficial, potentially stimulating and investment-attracting um, policies at the beginning, we did we did see um, throughout kind of the late 20th century, we did see some decent uh, policy in terms of attracting investment. And I have no problem with attracting investment by being strategic about your... Yeah tax rates. I mean, when it comes to royalties or corporate tax, you do have to be careful to not go too high. With the way that our free trade system is set up, you do have to watch out for that. But what I'm worried about is an extreme in the other direction, right? Mm-hmm. An extreme in the direction where, oh, sure, we're attracting investment, but at what point do we just completely stop uh, taking in more than we're spending? Mm-hmm. 
And in these kind of projects, like you said, spending on the startup, and we're also going to be spending on the cleanup. Oh, but yeah, the $260 billion um, cleanup liability. For orphan wells and these kind of things. Yep. And in the middle, well, where are we getting that revenue back? So this is the balance, right? And, and we need to attract investment, of course. That's the reality of a free trade system like we have. Um, but you can't do that at the expense of, of all revenue. And right now, with the kind of deficit we'll run after startup and cleanup, with nothing to show in between in terms of revenue, that's a danger. And this is, I think this is why I'm saying that the Fraser Institute report is is too far on the one extreme for me, because they're not balancing these two considerations. And, and the one thing that I just want to, and then we should move on to some of the, the other elements and the other documents we wanted to review, but um, <laughs> I have it noted here, but the stupid thing, the economy crashed in 2015 with falling oil prices, meaning that it's possible the low taxes were not uh, and royalties were not the reason for this economic golden age in the province. That if low taxes were all that was required to make this happen and to keep it going, like it, it and this is the thing that I really don't like about most economists as a general rule. And again, not not all economists, but especially the breed that live in the Fraser Institute dungeons. Like, uh, the Milton Friedman types. Like the Maxime Bernier types. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think Milton Friedman needs to take a lot of the, the heat for this kind of yeah, ideology. Yeah, he does. But the recently. thing, he definitely does. But the thing that I was going to say to that was is that um, they, they have no understanding of like the externalities. Like it wasn't that we were producing mm -hmm. at that time an expensive and valuable commodity in the form of oil and specifically synthetic crude that we could sell to the Americans so that they could make gasoline. No, it had nothing to do with that. It had to do with our low taxes. Right. As though they were never going to produce the oil in the first place. Yep, definitely. Stupid. Yeah, and I think we see evidences we're going to come come upon later that small increases in royalties, the small increase in corporate taxes mm -hmm. without the NDP, it's not enough to actually force these companies mm -hmm. out. Because the way that the tax rate was set up um, in the last few years with how cheap it was to produce oil here profits they were making on these projects is absolutely astronomical. Mm -hmm. So a 2% increase in your corporate tax or a bit of a royalty increase, yep. like Stelmac promised in 07, y you're not going to see a huge reduction in investment when they're already making so much. Yeah. I think they were getting almost a too good of a deal under the previously low tax rate system. And that is, I don't know if there's anything else you want to mention, but that brings us to the uh, report from the Parkland Institute. Um, the misplaced yeah. generosity. Yeah, so I think you've done a pretty good job to review, just of, uh, summing up kind of what austerity measures are, how mm -hmm. they're related with neoliberal ideology, yep. um, and then just kind of like what a tax advantage <laughs> is when it comes to investment, and how the Fraser Institute sees this tax advantage, and how extreme they think our taxes have to be on the low end to attract this I investment. So after that, I think what this, uh, uh, sorry, who did the report on misplaced generosity? So it was the Parkland, Parkland. Institute. Yeah. Great, and I think after we see kind of austerity as an idea and the idea of uh, attracting investment through low taxes, the Parkland report does a really good yep. job of showing the reality of taxes, investment, and economy mm -hmm. in Alberta. And specifically, the author is an individual or uh, a guy called uh, Reagan Boychuk. Uh, at the time, this report was published in 2010, bear in mind. So this was pre-crash, pre-2015 oil crash. Um, he he was the uh, at the time the new public policy research manager in Calgary. Excellent. Yeah. So, um, just to just do you want to conceptually ground this for a bit in Alberta today, or or in in the kind of 
early 2000 like 2009 period um just kind of like where we were at in terms of uh, our tax rates and uh, right in terms so of our economic growth at so that time. so yeah we'll just sort of set the stage so during that period of time alberto was seeing sort of un like just just gangbusters economic growth huge gdp uh the highest actually probably in the um at least per capita highest in on the continent i would guess um huge levels of oil development uh rapidly increasing employment and in fact the highest uh, increase employment year over year for a period of time uh, low taxes 10% uh, personal income tax rate 10% provincial income or sorry 10% provincial personal income tax rate 10% provincial corporate tax rate and low royalties on our oil Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and re- I would attribute a lot of the economic boom to the high price of oil at the time, mm-hmm. considering that oil hit a record, a peak yep. of over a hundred a barrel. I think it was one twenty, one thirty. Yeah, uh, for a high. while there, and that's mostly was attributed to. Mm-hmm. So we saw this huge amount of economic growth. However, we were having a really hard time paying for uh, public services mm-hmm. as well as balancing our budget. The, so the tax cuts that took place in and around um, a decade prior to that in sort of between 2000 and 2004 completely devastated our primary and secondary education and our healthcare system. Right. Resulting in the layoff of like like thousands of public workers including nurses and teachers right. specifically. This is kind of the stage that we're looking at here when when Stelmach started messing around with the with the formula. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit in 2007, beginning in 2007. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think we can kind of have a pretty clear picture of like this trade off between revenue and uh, investment and just kind of where tax so, draws that line. Yeah, and I just want to be clear as we go through the misplaced generosity report from the Parkland Institute um, that. It states here that, or the executive summary, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers publishes extensive statistics on Alber- on the Alberta oil patch, allowing us to use the industry's own data to evaluate its health and whether or not the string of royalty cuts announced by the government in Alberta since 2008 were justified. These statistics allow us to estimate the industry's pre-tax profit, the government's share of revenue and resource rent, and the portion of industry profit in excess of a normal rate of profit. So... Shall we? Let's get into it. Let's get into it. So I'm going to read an excerpt uh, based on, so they entitle it uh, The Tar Sands. And I know that's a loaded term and a lot of people go, oh, Tar Sands, that's just uh, lefty propaganda, lefty propaganda, anti-oil. And it's, it's like, okay, well, you know, have you seen bitumen? It's tar. Right. It's the same stuff that like tar pits are made out of that we find fossilized dinosaurs in. I think uh, similar, very similar in the same way that a lefties can be counted on to use the word tar sands. You can count on right wingers to use the word oil sands because they want to uh, kind of emphasize and exaggerate the quality of the oil that we have in Alberta. Yeah. Um, So I do I do see a lot of of ideology in calling it oil sands as well. So so it says here. um, So. I'm going to try and I don't want to necessarily read this whole thing, but here, let's well, let's, let's just review kind of like what Stelmach promised to do with the royalties in order to get more money into Alberta's coffers and then why that didn't end up end up following. Through. OK, so you just want me to read this after then. Sorry, you just want me to read the Tar Sands excerpt after then. Oh, you were going into that. Okay, yeah, sure. Let's yeah. begin with that and then we'll go on to. Um, yeah, yeah, because that comes up later because more of the policy yeah, details sure, later on. Sure. 
Um, so it says here, so the vast majority of the province's oil and gas has already been produced. This is conventional oil and gas. Um, Alberta's traditional oil production peaked in the early 1970s and has declined every year since 1997. By 2005, production was half of what it had been in 1990. Natural gas production peaked a decade ago, so that's methane gas. So declining production combined with reduced prices means Alberta will never again enjoy the spike in royalties it saw briefly at the height of the last boom. More than 90% of the province's known oil is gone, as almost 80% or as is almost 80% of our natural gas. Most of it remains will be expensive to produce and involve higher environmental risks and costs. Unconventional sources such as shale gas and coal bed methane, as well as new horizontal drilling techniques, could add to these reserves, but will be virtually given away under 5% royalties the Stelmet government announced for such production in May 2010. Mm-hmm. Bear in mind, this report was written in 2010, but in reality, the royalty framework hasn't changed too much since then. Yeah, that's true. So just bearing that in mind. Um, so it did it did change when the NDP came into power. I think it was in 2017 was the last review. But at that point, like, like the oil industry was basically dead right. on, on and, its and feet. The NDP did do a lot less than we were anticipating in terms of royalties. We mm-hmm. did not see a dramatic change in royalties in the same way that we saw yeah. a tax, uh, yeah. tax rate overhaul and income and corporate tax. So mm-hmm. unfortunately, I really wish they would have, but as um let's see here so we're going to move on to this next section here so then it goes on to talk about how we started i think if you want to just dwell on that for a second though which what does that mean if we missed the most the the greatest amount of oil being extracted and gas being extracted while we had um the lowest uh royalty rate what kind of opportunity what kind of window did we miss in the last few decades i mean this is something i really like to focus on when you contrast alberta with norway yeah that's right yeah yes this is correct looked into the norwegian wealth fund so there's a really good infographic i found a couple online where Mm -hmm. it shows like the meter full in norway with a few (laughs) billion and in alberta a very small um uh, little like thermometer next to each other and um you have the plans on this one infographic I saw laid out side by side, and uh, it is absolutely fascinating to see how Norway planned out the royalties so that the peak of oil price and oil production, they were getting a really solid amount of royalties, and they still have all that money in a sovereign wealth fund, which mm-hmm. they then reinvest in other things mm-hmm. and then profit off of. Yep. Uh, Saudi Arabia has done the same thing. Um, with so their so it, it really speaks so to something. So what kind of window did we miss it, here? It really speaks to something <laughs> that when you have Norway and Saudi Arabia adopting the same protectionist policy for the benefit of their own respective economies, not dwelling on the politics of the two nations. And we did not do that. That's embarrassing. Like, and, and this is sort of like, um, it, it's a joke that I've been, I've been making recently about sort of the Edmonton work ethic, which is, you know, doesn't exist essentially. Mm-hmm. This is almost what I'm talking about. It, it isn't that nobody else thought about it. It's just that the people in power of this province, the progressive conservatives, were either so uninspired or, to be quite frank, just dumb. That or corrupt. Or corrupt. That they they couldn't see the forest for the trees, essentially, and they missed this tremendous opportunity. Yeah, it's really sad because these days, no matter how high we get that uh, royalty rate, uh, we're not going to be seeing the same kind of revenues we could have gotten before. We'll never have the sovereign wealth fund that Norway has. Exactly. And so it says here, um, so then, yeah, so we had to move on to the oil sands because we ran out. We basically could not produce the same amount of oil and natural gas that petered out in 2005. Mm-hmm. So it was a window of 15 years and we missed it entirely, essentially. 
um, from 1990 to 2005. Alberta's progressive conservative governments have embarrassingly little to show for the staggering amount of oil and gas produced under their watch. The Heritage Trust Fund, started in 1976, reached its peak value of $12.7 billion a generation ago in 1987 when further deposits were discontinued. Inflation in the years since has eroded the real value of that sum by half. And that nest egg is paltry compared to what other jurisdictions have managed to, uh, to stock away. Alaska has stockpiled $37.3 billion since 1976, and Norway has amassed $512 billion since 1990. Bear in yes. mind, this is in 2010. Do you know how Norway did it, by the way? Um, I just want to finish the sentence. It should come as no surprise that the progressive conservatives, having squandered so much of Alberta's natural wealth, would hitch their wagon to what remains, the tar sands, of which more than 95% awaits production as of 2010. Damn. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty embarrassing. I mean, it shows a major lack of foresight, I think, which is our main problem, is we always mm-hmm. went with the easiest solution with the lowest uh, upfront cost. Um, but Norway proved that high upfront costs led to high... Uh, profits later on, mm-hmm. um, the way Norway accomplished what 500 billion compared to Alaska's what was it 60 70 um, billion? So Alaska stockpiled 37.3 billion dollars. Okay, so 37 billion compared to our what used to be 11, uh, compared to Norway's 500 yep. billion. Norway nationalized the oil industry. So what they've done is they took a ton of government revenue, which they had, they were posting massive surpluses back in the mm-hmm. 60s, 70s when oil production started really kicking off. Yep. And they used their massive government surpluses to invest in oil so they didn't have to have a low tax rate to attract private companies. Mm-hmm. So get that. They had their own government companies going in and doing it. And because it wasn't a private company, they could raise the tax rate as much as they wanted on that company. And they were able to, to get a ton of tax revenue out of their oil, which they now use... Um, to their benefit to this day. So then it kind of comes around to the question then, well, why was it that we didn't have adequate royalties, taxes, revenue collection streams as compared to these other uh, these other countries? And with Norway, you said, well, because they nationalized it. And I'm actually, this is probably one of the more controversial opinions that I have. I don't believe that oil development should be private. If you have a resource that's necessary for your national security, it cannot be left in the hands of private interests. Right. This applies to like military industrial complexes and war profiteers. This applies to oil companies. This applies, I mean, also to pharmaceutical research as well, which the vast majority is publicly funded, essentially. Like 95% or higher is publicly funded. You cannot trust private entities with resources that are that your national security depends on. Like it makes, it makes no sense. So not only does the national security depend on it, but oil is such a inelastic uh, resource. Mm-hmm. It has such a low elasticity of demand that if you were to make it nationalized, you wouldn't really see an increase in yeah, price. You wouldn't. And here's the thing. So why did we do this? So there's a section here entitled Industry Cries Poor. And also, I think along with this, oh, why do we continue to insist that a low... Uh, royalty rate is a good thing if after we've lost so much money with a low royalty because rate. people don't know their history they don't understand other systems and exactly. they believe in a neoliberal economic framework and that prides itself on a trickle-down theory yeah. that doesn't work and i think this is what we're about to get into is that uh Stelmac tried to kind of revert, reverse this trend a little bit mm-hmm. and there was so much pushback um, because of this trickle-down emphasis that mm-hmm. he ended up scrapping his increase. It wasn't even trickle-down. It was literally just the companies wanted the money because here it yeah. is. Well, so they're worried about uh, corporate so strikes, so right? W- or, sorry, capital strikes. Which would never happen because the resources are here. You can't take the oil out of the province, right? Unless right. you process it, in which case that's the business. Like, 
motherfucker. Like, just do your job, yep. right? Um, so uh, the day before the Stalemet government was to unveil the results of its 2010 competitiveness review, Calgary Energy Investment Analyst Peter Linder shared his insight. The president of Delta One Strategic Energy was confident the pending announcement would include royalty cuts. Delta One Strategic Energy. I just want you to dwell on that name for a moment and just think, like, how, like, pretentious and foppy is that? bullshit yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the perception is that big oil companies are making huge windfall profits which they weren't and aren't lender told cbc listeners if you go back for the last 10 years i would suggest that the rate of return of the industry for their investment is under 10 percent in reality the industry enjoyed 148.6 billion dollars in pre-tax profit on 273.4 billion dollars in cost between 1990 and 2008 a return of more than 54% right and this is all like this is all based off of internal figures from the like the Canadian Petroleum Producers Association or whatever. That's it's exactly called. what I'm saying. We can afford to increase yeah. those corporate and royalty taxes a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like it's going to cut into their profits enough for them to be incentivized to yeah. leave. He, Linder described, especially after the operations already started here. Linder described the higher royalties as a major mistake implemented, regardless of how competitive our province is, and regardless as to what the industry's reaction would be. He added, "I should give this guy a voice." Clearly, the industry went elsewhere, where they had much, much better returns. <laughs> Yet, as outlined below, Alberta's land sales, a key indicator of future energy investment intentions, actually increased in the years after higher royalties were announced in 2007. Right. So this is the the weird thing. So Stelmac I- introduced a plan to increase royalties, mm-hmm. I believe, from 15 to 20 percent, yep. approximately. Um uh, on certain projects, um, and <laughs> although we saw no reduction in investment, although we saw no economic downturn, um, he reversed this plan a few years later. And so we had a higher royalty proposed with no adverse effects, and after fear-mongering about the, the potential issues around this, we had a reversal mm-hmm. in 2010. And so this, this is, I think, a really big problem and a misstep of the progressive conservative so government. So for, for Linder, much of the problem was that the public was involved in the royalty review at all. For decades, the royalty rates were set by the province in collaboration with the industry and industry groups, not with the public. The public has and should have really no say in this matter because they don't understand the intricacies of the royalty system. <laughs> Stalmec was the first premier ever to make it a public situation. It should oh. have never been public in the first place. Who is this? Members of the public are not sensible because they don't understand the situation. <laughs> I mean, yeah, sure. So just for re- just to remind everyone, this is an individual named Peter Linder, who is a Calgary Energy Investment Analyst nice. and the president of Delta One Strategic Energy. Sounds pretty corrupt. I mean, <laughs> and, but that, that is he, just so this is such a view into the mind of the people who are involved in the industry and in the process. They, they literally just like, we want the oil. We want to take it out of the ground. We want to get as much profits as possible. F- fuck the people, literally. I, and I, I buy mean, me a yacht. I get it that people don't get some complex policy issues, and sometimes consultation is a little bit over-exaggerated. Like, mm-hmm. sometimes consultation is not going to give you a whole new view on this issue because people sometimes don't know. Mm-hmm. But in this issue, I'm sure Albertans want more revenue in their coffers. I'm sure we want the kind of sovereign wealth fund that other countries have and other states have. W- why is that so hard to understand that the stake, the public stake here is about keeping the money from the resources that we own mm-hmm. as residents of this area? Yeah. Like, sure, they don't have expertise in the area, but 
I mean, it just seems really ridiculous. Like, they know well enough that they want the money that comes from our resources. And, and I just want to be mindful of the time because we're running out. So the question then boils down to, well, then why did they do it? Why did they reduce the royalties? And why did Stelmac back off? Why did Stelmac back off? Why do they hate not at least 2% corporate tax increase? And like, so it all comes down to, so there's a couple of sections that we're not going to get to today, but we'll also be posting this document up for people to read as well because it is interesting. Um, and so I, uh, this would be the last section that I want to touch on. So it's called Politicking and Influence. Uh, so the progressive conservative government's royalty cuts can't be explained by public opinion and can't be justified by its own economic an analysis. There must be other reasons. Possible explanations include the progressive conservatives' business-friendly ideology and the fear of a capital strike on the part of the oil and gas industry, which we established can't happen because the oil is here. You develop it here. You don't develop it at all. Mm -hmm. it, it, it doesn't work that way. They play. You, you, have, you have the negotiating advantage by having the oil on your territory. Right. So um, the scale of profits enjoyed by the oil patch demonstrates the misplaced generosity of progressive conservative ideology and the actual record of oil field investment after the 2007 royalty changes uh, demonstrates that fear of a capital strike were exaggerated. Another likely explanation for the royalty cuts suggests a political threat, the Wild Rose Alliance Party. This new political party emerged at the height of the royalty debate, capitalizing on disenchanted progressive conservative politicians and members, building support in Alberta's oil capital, Calgary. Canada West Edmonton or can Canada West Foundation President Roger Gibbons said of the royalty cuts at the time, it will shore up support with the oil patch, which had been shifting its support to the Wild Rose Alliance Party since the progressive conservatives decided to raise royalties. Right. That is not insignificant in terms of financial and organizational support. That doesn't necessarily carry a lot of votes, but it's important. Right. So I think we saw a party choosing power over policy in this case. Mm -hmm. Instead of having policy that works for everyone that actually does contribute to more revenue and no economic downturn at all, mm -hmm. we had them choosing a policy that won them some votes. Yep. And I totally see that because you have the Wild Rose with their libertarian ideology that is very anti-taxation, mm -hmm. um, and the PCs are trying to pl play ball. Yep. And it's it's kind of sad because Stelmac's plan had a lot of vision, I think. I think it had a lot of, of proper managerial um, foresight mm -hmm. involved in it. I think it would have led to a better future. And we had them kowtowing for votes instead, which is a damn shame. It says here, another possible contributing factor is political party donations and party politics. Some explain the royalty cuts by noting the progressive conservatives were hit by big losses in political donations after the royalty changes. Of course. So this is where it So they were in from, bed right? with them. They yeah, were in bed with them the entire time. It's, it's corruption. It, it, well, Kevin, I, I'm, and I still have yet to read the book, but I like I got it, you know, signed when he did that talk over at McEwen, which was um, Oil's Deep State, right. um, written by Kevin Taft. And it's all about how the oil companies corrupted and took over um, Alberta from our judicial system to our education system to our environmental regulation to our oil development. And to our political system, which they buy favors in either through yeah. campaign donations or promising to do business with these politicians in the future. Right. Um, it's like it's no secret that Jim Prentice had a lot of private connections, for example. Yeah. So um, and, and I mean, the other big one I would cite is Kevin Taft again, his uh, follow the money. Uh, which he did work on um, with a few professors from uh, Edmonton, such as uh, some in McCune University, some econo economists, showing how much we were fleeced for our oil and how much we were leached on over this period, uh, how much we lost in terms of revenue just to attract business and not and and not you know 
having those difficult conversations with, with the companies we were trying to attract investment from. Uh, Oil's Deep State and Follow the Money by Kevin Taft both do a really good job of explaining this situation. I mean, we got fleeced. Like, we're, yeah. we're trying to attract private off. investment. Like, like dry, drive through everything. Edmonton, drive through parts of Calgary, come back and tell me that this was a province that took hundreds of billions of dollars of oil revenue out of the ground. Yeah. I dare you. Drive down 118th, drive down Gateway Boulevard, drive down any one of these streets. L- look at the panhandling. Look at the destitute people and homes. Look at the infrastructure. Look at the look at the decaying infrastructure that that just is wrapped around this city. The god awful public transportation systems. Oh, the, <laughs> the, the LRT. The complete <laughs> lack of planning. Now the C train's actually a little bit better, so we'll give credit where credit is due on this front. Right. But like this is not the capital city of a province that took hundreds of billions of dollars of, of wealth out of the ground. Right. Except that it was, and we got fleeced. And it like we should be we should be embarrassed about so, that. So it comes back to really the balance between having government revenue, you know, having money in our coffers publicly for our use as a public entity mm-hmm. and attracting investment to increase GDP growth. And as we've seen in this report, Stelmac's plan to increase taxes did not um, present a challenge to our GDP growth. Nope. Um, we saw, I mean, if you look at this report, uh, Misplaced Generosity by... Um, so it's by the Parkland Institute. By the Parkland Institute. Um, we And I should mention, using internal figures to the industry... Of course. ...and fully sourced versus the Fraser Institute, which literally just took data off of the StatCan website. The Fraser Institute looks like a high school social yeah, studies paper. Yeah, they do. It looks like a <laughs> joke. It, like, that's why but, I wanted to compare the two, because the Fraser Institute's report on the end of the Alberta tax advantage versus this Parkland Institute paper... Like the Fraser, just if any, if you learn anything from this episode, the Fraser Institute Institute is a joke. Yeah. And if you if you take anything that they say seriously after reading it yourself, you're a rube. Absolutely. And yeah. you you shouldn't be allowed to vote. And <laughs> like definitely. And I think it's a ma- ma- it. major overarching point that I want people to take away from this. Um, this in the last few minutes that we have is, is just what's at stake if we lose government revenue, right? Mm-hmm. So we've seen from the Stelmac plan, which eventually was scrapped in 2010 for mm-hmm. low, lower royalties, that higher royalties would not have caused a, a, a problem with our economic growth. Mm-hmm. So if we're not having that problem and we're getting more revenue, well, this is something we should definitely pursue because what are the costs of not having that revenue of, of attracting investment at, at all costs, regardless mm-hmm. of how, how little we have to show for it at the end of the day? Well, I think you did a really good job of summing it up. The, yeah. the infrastructure, our healthcare, education systems not being funded properly. This is the problem. Like we literally didn't have enough schools or hospitals in the province. Right. Low revenue is a threat to the government because low spending is a threat to our lives. And you know what's really funny? And this is kind of what I want to close out on. Low spending is a threat also to the economy. So if you look at Keynesian e- economics, um, one of my favorite kind of post-Keynesian or neo-Keynesian uh, writers would be um, uh, the guy who wrote, oh, Joseph Stiglitz, okay, the yep. guy who yep. wrote um, uh, Globalism and Globalization and Its Discontents. Um, so, and he also wrote The High Price of Inequality. Um, so what a lot of these guys point out with this Keynesian approach is that, well, if you invest dollars uh, from revenue in these kind of industries into education, into healthcare, which are perennial systems, which have perennial job uh, creation, 
you will create, and the Parkland Institute report actually does go over this, which is fascinating. Um, you can find it in there. You will create up to two to three times more jobs than investing these dollars back into oil or cutting uh, mm -hmm. taxes on oil. Mm -hmm. So the threat we're seeing here is that we haven't properly balanced our low taxes to attract investment and high-ish taxes to increase revenue. Mm -hmm. And now what we've seen is um, we have a long way to go before we'd actually start repelling investment, but um, we're not even close to the threshold we need to actually support our economy and our healthcare and our education. And if we only had this public funds to invest in things like we've seen with Norway, their sovereign wealth fund does extremely well. Saudi Arabia are mostly divesting from oil and investing into other projects because they see the future and they have foresight. It kind of helps also not to have elections because yeah. then you get to plan a lot in the head. But this is what we're missing out on. So all these costs of like, oh, we're gonna lower investment, having found out that they're not true, all we've done is deprived ourselves of a huge revenue source and we've missed the window. It's too late. Yeah, and I, and I mean, I kind of want to close on in there because I can say better. Other than the only thing that I would say is that, you know, the PCs did have a political dynasty of four decades. They weren't necessarily that worried about elections most times. Although there are a couple of times where it came close, like when the last oil crash happened in the early 1980s. And the estimates were if it had happened like six months prior, we might have had an NDP government under Grant Notley during that time. Um, Norway, for instance, uses a proportional representation system that encourages political parties to form coalitions for right. the benefit of their entire party. And yeah, Saudi Arabia is just a theocracy. So you have these different systems, and two of them managed to figure out a way to keep the oil wealth and to reinvest it and to position themselves on much better ground moving forward. And then you have Alberta, where there are people who literally voted in um, a party filled with uh, homophobes and racists and bigots, literally, like quite literally, yeah. well, because they promise them that we're going to bring jobs back because we're going to cut the taxes. If you boil down their tax policy, what they're promising is to take money away from Albertans. Yeah, like the Super Lab that they just canceled. Yeah, that's a good, a, a, a good example. And when it comes to oil, um, even before you get beyond spending, when it comes mm -hmm. to, to tax revenues themselves, you're promising to give away our oil to the lowest bidder mm -hmm. without us having anything to show for it. So, I um, And this is something I'm really worried about. We just elected a, a government that, and this is my number one issue in the election, we elected a government who's not going to return to us the value that is in the ground in the mm -hmm. province where we live. And that's the real problem. So I think that that kind of broadly, broadly, broadly run, rounds out our time for the day. Um, and when we come back next week, I don't know, we'll, we'll see what's happened and we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, you know, if you want to continue on this issue with a bit of Kevin Taft uh, focus, we could as well. And yep. I was thinking also the Super Lab thing yep. you mentioned, showing the, the tangible results of low spending in healthcare. I think that's a pretty yep. good topic as well. So we'll see what we get and, to. And maybe we can also talk about the four governments cut of its public health care and education. Did you and see the teacher job cuts let's, in Ontario? Let, let's let's save that for for next week. Let's go over that because we're we're fa we're facing into the maw of that right now. We're facing into the maw of austerity, right? As it were. So, uh, you know, that has been our view into the underside of power. I'm Mark, and I'm Sean again. And we'll see you next week. Yeah, thank you very <laughs> much for joining us. I'm excited to get the ball rolling on this. And if you checked out last week's episode, that's great. If not. Go back and check it out, summing up all the kind of election uh, post-mortem details that you'd probably want to know. So, Like, share, and subscribe.